Hi, uh, welcome once again to Yester Ladies. I'm Dana. And I'm Heather. And this week we're talking about Beatrix Potter. Yes, Beatrix Potter. So where would you like to start, Dana? Well, let's start at the beginning, Heather, with uh, when was she born? Uh, well, Dana, I did some research and I found out that she was... <laughs> Good. <laughs> Shockingly. <laughs> um, I found out that she was born in 1866 in Kensington Garden in London and her birthday is July 28th. So she's British. She is very British. <laughs> and an upper class, upper yes. crust British as well. That's an excellent point that I forgot to write down. Hers is not a rags to riches story. It's no. It's just riches to more riches. Yeah, but it's kind of like like daddy's riches to independent woman riches, which is great. This is very true. <laughs> this is, I agree. I think that's a good story. Yes. Yeah. Um, right. So she was born in 1866. And as you say, she had a pretty posh... Um, family mm-hmm. and um i think it's interesting it seems like the relationship with her mother is an interesting <laughs> um relationship that continues throughout the course of both of their lives um beginning with this kind of opposition in in perhaps attitude and personality maybe i think her mother was very much a traditionalist yeah. And she was very independent and not at all traditional in the right. ways her mother was. So she was expected to, you know, grow up as a lady and be educated to be a wife and yes. marry, marry, marry well, marry well, exactly. Yes. Marry particularly, you know, not below her, her station, I guess, as, <laughs> as they might say at the time. Um, so, but in the meantime, before she would be expected to marry, she was brought up um, kind of, from what I read, her mom was fairly detached as a parent, which I think is probably not uncommon, especially in the upper classes in British society at that time. So she was kind of, you know, raised by um, governesses and um, uh, nannies and mm-hmm. That kind of thing. So she, it sounds like she had a series of governesses um, as a young girl. And by all accounts, it sounds like she was very intelligent and quick to learn and particularly interested in um, science and biology. And her and her younger brother, Bertram, who uh, was born in 1872. So he was, you know, several years younger than her. Yeah, six years. Thank you. <laughs> wow, I did the, I did the math earlier. Oh, okay, because, okay. because I You're didn't want me up. I didn't want to have that. He was <laughs> struggling to do mental math while on air. I'm so bad at that. I'm yeah. so bad at looking at two dates. I mean, like, okay, so how long have they been married? Or how old is it? What? What's the difference between? Them? I'm just I'm really bad at that. And under pressure, it makes it worse. Yes, I can do it on true. my own, like at home, no problem. And yeah, then get me in a podcast or a classroom, and I, I can't do simple math. This is why we went into English literature. Mm, it's true. It's <laughs> a good point. Um, so her brother was six years, six years younger, younger than her. Um, and they kind of, it sounds like, kept a menagerie of sorts of various animals, insects and small rodents. And she had mice and they had bats. Bats? Yeah, they what? had bats. Awesome. I know. It is pretty cool. Hmm. And apparently this was okay with her parents or with their parents. I'm and, surprised. Yeah. I'm surprised her mother, from what we know about her, was okay with this. She likely wasn't okay with this. <laughs> and and maybe her father's influence or, or maybe they were just so persistent, the children, that she gave in. But maybe I know, I thought, for whatever reason, 
Yeah, they, they had a they whole had bunch of little animals that they and it's interesting we just last night heather and i watched the movie miss potter that mm. came out um not quite 10 years ago with renee zellweger in it playing beatrix potter which very good movie i really enjoyed it yeah really well done i yep. had seen it not too long after it came out and I remember enjoying it quite a lot and not realizing too how interesting Beatrix Potter is. Um, but one of the things they kind of um, sentimentalize, I guess, is her in the movie, her attitude toward the animals is a little bit different from her brother who is like a little ruthless, ruthless little boy. Right. You know, pinning who, insects, like, ha take that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just bloodthirsty. <laughs> and she was meanwhile, like, no, Bertram, oh, that's cruel. Blah, blah, blah. Right. But, uh, apparently in real life, she was pretty pragmatic about, um, you know, putting animals out of their misery when they got sick. And then she very practically <laughs> would, um, basically kind of dissect them and stuff oh. them and use them as like anima- anatomical models for her hmm. drawing, which it is, very, it is very practical <laughs> as you say, yeah. Yeah. but you know, not all that sentimental, which actually okay. I think I, when you read her stories, it's true. They're pretty like down to earth. That's how life is. Matter of fact. Matter of fact. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That makes Mr. sense. Mr. McGregor yeah. baked uh, <laughs> your, your Peter father, Rabbit's father in a pie. <laughs> your father has an accident. Not he was murdered and eaten. He yeah. had an accident. He had an accident. <laughs> eaten in a pie. It's very true. It's a pretty bad accident. <laughs> Let's describe this to our children. <laughs> your father died. <laughs> right. Yeah. So she was like, you know, she was a yeah. pragmatist. Yeah. Realist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And as much as she loved... Uh, animal life and um she was pretty realistic about it and not afraid Mm. to kind of do what needed to be done which actually makes sense when she later grows up and becomes a a major farmer basically because that's a you know realistic respectful but practical view of of animal life Mm. um, which is pretty typical for farmers i think so there you go (laughs) um uh their childhood was spent mostly during the year in London, but they would spend summers in, uh, first in Scotland, and I'm totally going to butcher this name. Do you know how to say this no. name of the house that they say that? No. You're not helpful at <laughs> all. <laughs> I don't know why you have me here for this podcast. No, I'm just kidding. Well, let me see. Let me see. Dal... Dalgais? Dalgais? Dalgaisy? I know. I want to say Dalgais. That's that doesn't sound Scottish. <laughs> I agree. It guys. More French. Dog guys. I've uh, all of the Scottish no. people I know will just be shaking their heads, oh, horrified, <laughs> horrified that I can't S- pronounce this. Scandalized. Scandalized, indeed. Um, but anyway, they went to this place called we think maybe Dalgai's House, <laughs> which was in Perthshire, Scotland, and uh, they spent a lot of summers there. And this spot and then later on the family would vacation in the lake district in england in uh the north of the country and both of these spots were pretty influential i think on beatrix as kind of a budding artist and thinker and she realized how much she loved the countryside loved being out in nature um observing it recording it and these certainly these these attitudes of hers would have been nurtured by spending all of this time uh, in these places in the summer. Mm. And I think they say in the film as well that I didn't realize I disliked the city until I went to mm-hmm. the country or, that you know, nice quote. yeah, it was yeah. their sort of first summer vacation that opened her eyes to the fact that I'm not a city girl. I'm, I belong in the country or I like nature. And the scenery in the film is 
breathtaking. Oh my goodness. I, I think would, you'd be hard pressed to find someone who wouldn't enjoy that. Ugh. <laughs> oh, <this laughs> These valleys and lakes are just hideous. These meadows are <laughs> bothering me. Can't stand it. <laughs> yeah. So an easy, an easy, uh, <laughs> easy landscape to fall in love with. Yes. Absolutely. Yep. Um, so, you know, she grows up in this kind of in some ways, I think, you know, maybe her parents were a little bit cold and distant, but at the same time, she was having a really wonderful education. She was, you know, basically in the lap of luxury and spending her summers in these beautiful locales that were kind of stoking her artistic and scientific mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, interests. Um, now, one thing that's interesting, she was naturally talented as an artist, obviously, um, from a young age and was always drawing and painting and involved in art. Um and she was taking art lessons uh, from a certain age, but apparently didn't like it at all. Didn't uh-huh. like taking art lessons and considered she was afraid that taking art lessons would impact her style oh. and that she would end up just mimicking what she was taught rather than developing her own artistic style, which mm. is pretty cool for a child to Very be sophisticated. Yeah. I have the year written down when she started art lessons and it was 1878. So by my shaky mental math, that's 12. <laughs> she would be 12 mm-hmm. for a 12 year old to think oh, these art lessons are going to cramp my style <laughs> or dilute my style as an artist is rather precocious it is yeah what she did enjoy doing was going with her father to the national gallery and her father himself had had interest in being an artist and had always wanted to be a painter and um had aspired to that but his his family hadn't approved that wasn't a good enough uh uh, avocation for (laughs) a young man who was on the way up oh and we should mention too Mm. this is something that they kind of bring out in the movie that her parents were very snobbish about (laughs) who she might be able to marry or associate with and like who they associated with but uh they weren't old money they weren't Mm, yes they weren't you know ancient nobility in england they were new money bourgeois you might say (laughs) nouveau riche nouveau riche yep Um, our french words (laughs) (laughs) that's right um they i think it was like Beatrix's grandparents had made money in mm-hmm. trade. Right. It was oh. only one or two generations back. Right. Before you get to tradespeople. Yeah. Yeah. So. so her father became a lawyer, kind of a gentleman lawyer who spent, you know, probably at least as much time at his club as he did actually <laughs> practicing law. Um, but uh, yeah, their wealth came pretty recent. So mm-hmm. just interesting you know, they're kind of social climbers and right. in a certain light, um, but very snobbish about who they associated with and who their children could marry. Um, so anyway, her father was kind of an aspiring artist and had would have liked to have gone down that path, but didn't feel he was able to. But he was interested in photography and they would go to the National Gallery. And uh, I think I read somewhere that he liked to take pictures of the the artwork there um, and was kind of involved in photography to a certain degree. And it sounds like maybe he encouraged her to a certain extent in her practice of art. I would imagine so as a thwarted artist himself. I think he would have been delighted that she had artistic talent and could, could express it. Absolutely. So I have down, you know, just one little mark of her artistic ability at a pretty young age in 1880, she won an award for her artwork, an art student certificate <laughs> for model drawing and freehand. Yeah, so I'm not nice. sure what body awarded her 
that certificate. It didn't say where it no, was it from. Didn't. Yeah. <laughs> the research we did did not discover that. Mm-hmm. Yep. But in any event, she won an award, so that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, I love this little detail. In 1890, uh, she bought her first rabbit and named him Benjamin Bouncer. Aww. <laughs> and I love there are pictures of her online. You can look up of her leading Benjamin around on a lead. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> I know. It's just so cute. He's kind of a long-eared bunny. Um, and by this point, she's kind of entering into adulthood. And she had kind of come to define her style as a watercolorist. She had. It looks like she had kind of dabbled in other art forms, whether uh, oil or, you know, pen and ink or whatever. But in the end, what she kind of obviously felt was more her style was watercolor work. And that's, of course, what we see in the um, all of her books. Mm-hmm. Um, so by 1892, she started to realize she could possibly make some money with her artwork. And she sold six watercolors in 1892. And that was the first time she made any money off of her work. Good for her. I know. It's pretty cool. Budding businesswoman. Yeah. (laughs) Now, at the same time, she was uh, developing an interest, funnily enough, (laughs) in uh, mushrooms. (laughs) And and fungi. Fungi, yes. And she was uh, an amateur mycologist. You stole my word. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it's okay. (laughs) I wanted to mention mycology and mycologist. Sound very... I don't know. <laughs> Informed. Informed. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, she um, was first commissioned to paint um, insects, and so she did a little bit of insect painting, and then um, I believe it was an uncle helped her um, uh, get into the study of fungus, and uh, <laughs> it sounds like some kind of, I don't know if it was a scholarship or, or what it was, it was some kind of, I don't know, relationship or ability to study this. Um, And she ended up writing a scientific paper. Yeah, that's the interesting thing. Now, it must have been extremely frustrating for her, as it would be for any of us, because she wrote this paper. And actually now, in more recent decades, her work as a mycologist has been recognized and taken seriously by the scientific community. And she actually had developed a theory about... um, fungus spores and um how they reproduce basically that she wrote this paper about and wanted to present it to the um Linnaean society which was a scientific society in England at the time uh now it was her paper was read apparently 1897 was when this happened and her paper was read but she wasn't allowed to attend oh. Because she was a woman and they, they didn't, A, they didn't allow women into the society and B, they didn't allow them to even attend the meetings. <laughs> so her paper was read, but she couldn't be there in person to either read it or see it being read. Mm. And apparently, um, you know, all of these scientists didn't take it seriously. They kind of, they didn't discuss it afterwards. It was it didn't make it into the peer review process mm-hmm. for that society. It just kind of was like, oh, this oh, whatever. This young woman doesn't <laughs> upstart. <laughs> this random woman wrote an article, and well, we'll read it, but that's all. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. So unfortunately, her scientific career officially it didn't really go anywhere. But it's kind of nice to see in later years that her work has been recognized. And we should point out that she kind of married her artistic ability with her love of. Um, mycology and mushrooms (laughs) and did amazing detailed beautiful illustrations of 
um, different varieties of mushrooms and fungi. Mm -hmm. And now a lot of that work is it's hanging in museums or it's, uh, it's been used or it was used for the first time. Let me see. In 1967, finally, um, her, her paintings were used to illustrate a, um, important work on fungus and Mm. mushrooms i saw that when i was researching there was a timeline that i think you were also using to research and that kind of popped up right at the end like the the much more modern end of the timeline and i was like oh oh my gosh there it is again like i thought that door was closed as i was researching and then all of a sudden you see in like the 60s that she's getting some some credit and they're using those paintings that were made so long ago so you know it's very unfortunate that didn't happen in her lifetime but at least she's getting some posthumous recognition for her um apparently very rigorous and excellent work uh with the fungus and and it speaks to how well those paintings were done as well that you know they could have had many other people paint them but hers were you know better or or as good as well and they are beautiful uh i don't know if you saw any Mm, of them very very briefly just gorgeous i mean the colors are amazing and she was really i mean that's one of the things that people really recognize about her illustrations her artwork in in the books later on is how beautifully realistically done they are how Mm. how kind of natural and so she was so obviously a close observer of nature um both kind of plant life and animal life and she was really good at capturing all of the details and you know you look at the you know the bunnies are just right they they they're they look like real bunnies they're not they're not kind of um cartoon right ishly done at all no yeah. they're very yeah. very realistic looking and beautiful and yeah these mushrooms are the, the paintings are rather beautiful. Hmm. More beautiful than you ex- expect paintings of mushrooms For, to be, <laughs> actually. <laughs> right. <laughs> so her scientific career isn't really going anywhere. But at the same time, she was having a little bit of commercial success selling her artwork for uh, greeting cards and then i think there was another there was a book of like fairy stories or nursery rhymes and they used her work um for that so okay she had had a little bit of success selling her artwork um and during this period she was also she would write letters to children of friends so one one child in particular was the son of her former governess and she would write him these um well, people refer to them now as picture letters and she would she would illustrate them basically with these lovely little uh pen and ink drawings of various little animals and particularly in 1902 this is when uh or sorry no i'm jumping ahead there um I have 1893 for the picture letter. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. There we no, go. Okay. Um, so, yes, 1893 is when she first mentions Peter Rabbit in a story. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was a letter to this little boy, the son Aww. of her governess. Aww. And we should introduce where Peter Rabbit came from because mm-hmm. she purchased Benjamin Bouncer in 1893, uh, but he ended up dying. Oh. And so she replaced him with, eight, uh, sorry, in 1893 with Peter Rabbit. So he yeah. was the second rabbit that she purchased. Um, so and sweet. then he, you know, he's, that, that's sort of the first maybe official appearance of his story in mm-hmm. this letter rather than in book form. Absolutely. Yeah. So she was kind of known for doing this, I guess, amongst her, her circle. And 
at some point, um, I'm not really sure at what point when she decided, but I guess she, she figured at this point, hey, I'm making a little bit of money with my artwork. And you really get the sense, too, that this is an independent person who really liked the idea of maybe making her own way. Mm. And we should also point out, um, by this point, she was a young woman who probably was her mother in particular, I think, was putting <laughs> pressure on her to marry. And they... they definitely depict this in the movie that she was kind of under pressure to to pick a suitable husband and it seems as though she wasn't all that interested in doing that or hadn't certainly hadn't met anybody interesting <laughs> enough the <laughs> candidates that her mother presents in the movie are i'm sure overblown <laughs> but they're like hilariously um Wrong undesirable yeah. yes. <laughs> just terrible um so instead of pursuing the appropriate path by finding a husband and you know, being an obedient little wife who goes to tea parties and sits in drawing rooms. She just was not interested in that. And actually one other little tidbit, um, throughout this period, I don't know how for how long she kept a journal, but she did. It sounds like at least through her younger years or during this period, she kept a journal. And what was interesting is that she wrote it in code. I thought that was so great when I read that. How cool. And it took years after she died for someone to break the code, right? It was like quite the complex creation. I've got it here. Um, Nineteen fifty eight. Nineteen fifty eight, right. So you know. a woman named Leslie Linden finally breaks the code mm-hmm. and they're able to read her journal and then it was published in nineteen sixty six. And what is right. really cool is her journal was less about, you know, maybe her her thoughts and feelings and her crushes or anything like that. <laughs> and more kind of her observations about what she found to be a pretty boring society life that she was kind of being pushed into and not really all that interested in. Um, so this is a, you know, a woman who kind of sticks out in her time period, somebody who wasn't really interested in following the, the regular path for somebody in her position, more independently minded, obviously very intelligent and thoughtful and creative and witty and just really kind of unsuited to the lifestyle that her mother wanted for her. Mm, Um, so she decides to pursue the idea of perhaps publishing a book. Uh, actually, I think that's what I remember reading is that that governess uh, that she was writing to her son and doing these little picture letters. And I guess the governess said to her, you know, this is a lovely story. She'd ri- she wrote l- the story of Peter Rabbit, you know, with Flopsy and Bobsy and Cottontail and the whole <laughs> gang and Mr. McGregor's garden and all of that. So she had written this in the letter and the governess had said, this is you should publish this story. This is great. (laughs) And like your pictures are, are lovely. And so I think that's maybe where Mm. she first thought, okay, maybe I could do that. So she starts kind of shopping around and, um, it seems nobody is all that interested at first until (laughs) she goes to a publishing house, uh, Frederick Warren and co, which was run by two brothers in particular. They agreed to take on her book, uh, the tale of Peter rabbit. um, but it seems as though they took it on mostly to give a little project to their younger brother, Norman, who <laughs> wanted to get into the business, but they were like, oh, Norman, like, we don't have time for you kind of a thing. So they like, <laughs> oh, here, here, take this. Yeah, here, take this like Throw him a bone. stupid little bunny book and see what you can do with it. And they didn't expect it to like do much of anything. Right. Um, however, Norman, who it turns out was a pretty thoughtful, cool dude. 
um, in his own right, uh, took a look at this story and decided he loved it and that he saw the potential and he saw the, mm. the loveliness in the story and the illustrations and thought it was wonderful and was very enthusiastic about pursuing it. <laughs> and was really sweet. I mean, yeah. it seems like he... He cared not only for, for Beatrix, you know, eventually, but really cared about the book mm -hmm. and publishing and doing you know, it right. I wonder why his brothers didn't want him involved when he clearly cared so much and had talent for it. Yeah. And, you know, why would Whatever. he tell well? Like, oh, we'll never know. brother, Norman, Norman, <laughs> with, his, with his big mustache. What does he know? <laughs> That's one thing we both enjoy very much is uh, Ewan McGregor plays um, Norman Warren in the, in the movie, Miss Potter. And we were very much getting a kick out of his very angular mustache <laughs> it's prominent it and is it's prominent. angular but i was i was looking at pictures of the original mm. norman warren today yes. and he had that mustache he did mm -hmm. he did and ewan mcgregor is a great choice to play him because he he really suits the, yeah. the original he was look charming and, and lovely then we had to note that on the cover of the, of yeah, the what dvd they have they'd like photoshopped his mustache off or or photographed him without yeah like it's probably like they did the the promo shots for the movie like months after it had been filmed right. and he didn't have the mustache anymore but again i feel like you just get him a fake mustache <laughs> like, or, or photoshop something in yeah or, you know, it would be easy to put that on so we weren't sure why on the cover there is no mustache and then in the movie he's very clearly oh hollywood mustachioed. <laughs> yeah. now i have a tidbit to add dana mm. about um uh the tale of peter rabbit being published um i have a note that it was originally like commercially published in 1902, but in 1901, Beatrix Potter had a private version published and it was done in black and white. So she had kind of pursued like self-publishing or private publication before she got accepted by um, Warren and company. So there would have been maybe a few little black and white copies floating around. I can only imagine how valuable those would be now. Oh my right? gosh. That would, yeah. be, that would be huge. But uh, so she had kind of, you know, she had a little dabble in publishing first and then got accepted by, right. by the publisher. Right. And um, when they did publish uh, the tale of Peter rabbit, which um, was of course the first of her books to come out, um, it was a huge success yeah. and sold out the first printing before they had the second edition. Like it just, it was an immediate smash hit, which is um, so great. It it's is so great. Satisfying. And one of the, or a couple of the things that she was very particular about was originally she had wanted the books published in black and white because she wanted the cost kept down because she wanted these books to be affordable for children mm -hmm. potentially to buy themselves. Um, so she was reluctant to the idea of, of putting them out in color, but Norman Warren convinced her he basically, oh, and her other, her other, you know, major sticking point was they had to be small yeah. for little hands, but I didn't think it's so sweet. <laughs> and that's why, you know, all of us, I know we both have copies yeah. of all the books and they are those little, yeah. just those little, just adorable and they're so identifiable at that size, yeah. right? Like th those are the Beatrix. Yeah, like books. no other books yeah, are in that size. Right, right. Most other children's books are big, larger, right? Picture or, books. Or they're not known for being that size, right? Mm -hmm. Like there are some other kids' books that size, but right. that's not their trademark. And we associate that 
shape and size of books with Beatrix Beatrix Potter. Potter books. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's great. So uh, Norman Warren very creatively and thoughtfully came up with a solution. Uh, and she had said like, you know, yeah, it'd be great to publish them in color. The, mm. the illustrations look so much better in color, but she was very adamant that the cost be kept down. Um, but he came up with a solution um, saying, okay, well, if we keep the number of illustrations down to a certain amount. So I think it was 31. Right. Yeah. Great. So he convinced her to cut out a number of the illustrations so that they could print them all on one sheet right. and that would keep the cost down and it enable them to print in color, uh, which was thoughtful and thoughtful. Good really, idea. Yeah, really good. So between the two of them, uh, they put out what is now a very iconic book in a very iconic style and size. Mm. Um, and as we say, it's sold out fast <laughs> they went like hotcakes those little books and i like that the design of the classic books is still the same today yeah i mean the footage they were showing in the movie and pictures i've seen of the originals they look identical to what they're producing today which is so charming that that design has you know remained through now century or more and mm-hmm. uh yeah like just the classic stylings of that oh, really neat just so great so uh as we say it was a smash hit and immediately she they start working on further books so you get you know the tale of squirrel nutkin later on and Mm -hmm. jemima puddle duck shows up benjamin bunny yeah just so many great all the the friends mrs tiddlywink i liked that one (laughs) in particular she was great she was pretty great the little hedgehog we were pointing out how much we like the way when you see mrs tiddlywink she has a mob cap on her head but her she's a hedgehog right so she's got those spines and they stick through the thin fabric of her mob cap so she's got this like prickly mob cap so awesome i love that detail yeah it was a great detail (laughs) so we should point out too beatrix potter she's such a surprising person in her she was so good at so many things and she had such varied interests and actually i was thinking she reminds me of you a little Ah. bit like all of your varied interests and you're good at all these different (laughs) things and you've got all these different interests and you've got all these things on the go and that kind of it reminds me of uh of you when I look at that in Beatrix Potter. I have fingers in many pies. You do. It's very true. So many pies, so many fingers. (laughs) I mean, I like pie. What can I say? (laughs) That's true too. That's that's another pie I have a finger in, the pie making pie. (laughs) Well, we both do. I would say I've started recently to have some success with pies, which I am extremely proud of. It's it's a skill. It is a skill. It's a real skill. Absolutely. So anyway, one of the okay. one of the skills that we're referring to uh, for Beatrix Potter is her very savvy understanding of marketing and promotion and mm. merchandising. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she's really the first person, especially with children's um, items or children's like products, books or stories. She sees the potential in selling merchandise to go along with these books and uh peter rabbit was so successful and such a you know prominent figure Mm. by this point she sees how valuable a um licensed by her peter rabbit doll would be so in 1903 she introduces the peter rabbit doll and have you did you see pictures i saw pictures it's just like a, it's adorable charming (laughs) no other word beautiful sweet little stuffed rabbit in a (laughs) blue jacket with brass buttons it's just (laughs) so sweet and awesome it reminded me of the what's the brand of teddy bears stife or is it i don't know there's that classic brand of german teddy bears oh really good uh, ones yeah like really really high quality uh i'm sure some of our listeners will know what i'm referring to and um 
and it reminded me of that right that just mm. like, classic classic stuffed animal and like hand sewn and oh, they're just so cute beautiful yeah. so beautiful so that was kind of the first item but um over the next decades as she publishes all these books a number a number of other merchandising opportunities <laughs> she comes up with and one of the early ones along with the doll was a game mm. a peter rabbit game a board game that and I had I saw a glimpse of kind of a mock-up of it that they used and it was like Mr. McGregor's garden and it looks like uh-huh. kind of a you have to make your way through the garden kind of a game <laughs> so things like that and then they had um the Peter Rabbit painting book mm, later I saw on that one I thought ah oh, it's the precursor to the coloring book yeah like the branded Disney character coloring book oh <laughs> yeah <laughs> so for better or for worse mm. Beatrix Potter was kind of the first person to really start merchandising children's mm. characters yeah. and that along with the books themselves made her a very wealthy woman, um, which was, which was great because she had this measure of independence. Now at this point, she's still living with her parents, um, and kind of, you know, publishing her books. And we kind of hinted earlier at this budding romance, which is just so so sweet, sweet. uh, between Beatrix Potter and Norman Warren. And it seems as though their partnership, it did seem like they have a a great partnership, that they're really working together to publish these books. And by 1905, uh, he proposed and he proposed in July and she accepted Hooray! and her parents did not approve. They oh, were not happy all. about it, but she was prepared to fight them and do what she wanted. And mm-hmm. she didn't get, they thought he was like a tradesman and that wasn't good <laughs> enough. And, and I think they worried that it was a flash in the pan as well. That, although, you know, I mean like, by this point, they've, they've been working years together, together for a number of years. Right, like, right. They hadn't just met. It was at least three years since the original edition was published, and they would have been working before that. So three to four years. I mean, it sounds she like knows him. <laughs> this relationship, this romance kind of budded from a friendship, from a good right. working relationship. Yeah, good. And like, what could Which be better like, than that? That's the ideal. Right, exactly. So, it seems like kind yeah. of the last thing from a flash in the pan. So <laughs> for whatever reason, yeah. it, probably mostly because he wasn't, he wasn't uh, high class enough. Right. Her parents were very much opposed to the idea. Um, in the end, though, though, this is the worst detail oh, of the terrible. podcast. Um, so Norman proposed in July of 1905, and a month later, he died of leukemia. Uh, apparently a very aggressive form that just swept in and mm-hmm. um, took him very quickly. And unfortunately, Beatrix, I think at this point, she was in the country with her family and wasn't there with him at all um and i just i can't imagine this this poor woman at this point you know she'd found a really obviously a very deep true relationship right right. you know this wasn't some marriage because she had to get married or marriage to a suitable partner no this was was, a true meeting of minds and a a true relationship and yeah yeah and And to lose that so suddenly so unexpectedly to not even be there i mean Mm -hmm. it would it would not be easy under any circumstances but at least had you been there you could have said goodbye and and felt like you you know helped in the end i was bawling at this point (laughs) in the movie i don't know if you noticed last night (laughs) i'm an easy crier (laughs) i felt a little cold but i wasn't (laughs) i don't think any because you never cry so i don't think anything of it but it takes a lot to to make you cry with a movie i'm not an easy crier although woman in gold i was sobbing right oh gosh oh Oh, my gosh two of us in the theater were we could have gone through a box of Kleenex. Everybody see that movie. Yeah, go see so one good it's with Helen Mirren. It's, mm. it's fabulous. Yeah. Oh my gosh. What a good uh, that movie. one even got me to cry. So. <laughs> well, <laughs> but you and McGregor dying you and gets me. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> that's a tough one to take. Um, so anyway, what's interesting is, okay, at this point, this is 1905. Um, the love of her life is gone. It seems as though to me anyway, it seems like this kind of spurs Beatrix Potter to kind of really strike out on her own mm-hmm. and gain some independence and do what she wants to do and kind of get away, get out from as much as she could from the influence of her of her parents mm-hmm. and that kind of heavy social obligation and i mean not to say that she abandoned them completely because it no. seems like in the next years she spent quite a lot of time yep. you yep. know taking after her parents and she spent big chunks of her of her years in london um you know looking after her parents as they got older right. and kind of right. fulfilling that and obligation. she eventually bought property for her mother and yep. other things right so yeah but yeah. her heart was in the countryside and in 1905 she bought hilltop farm in the lake district and this was the first you know bit of property and the first working farm that she bought out of what would later become quite a few she <laughs> she, she, she bought a lot massive. of land yeah um, just acreages and estates yeah she, she had quite the real estate portfolio which impresses me so much i know i was like this is almost my favorite part about her i mean, <laughs> I mean of course yeah. i would love to publish but i was like oh my gosh this is like as good if not better this is wonderful the fact that she has both is incredible that she has all these published books and this you know all these this land and yeah and absolutely and yeah um so what is really cool is uh, she buys this farm in the Lake District and then develops this increasing interest in both farming and land conservation. Mm-hmm. And for the rest of her life, it seems like this took on more and more importance to her, the um, learning about farming and being actively involved in farming and running a farm and all the things that that entailed, including, I love this, she became a um, a really highly respected <laughs> breeder of sheep. Uh, one particular breed in particular, the um, Herdwick uh, sheep breed. And she won awards for for her sheep yep. and was very much interested in, in that aspect of farming. I have written down here in 1930, she won silver for one of her Herdwick ewes. <laughs> awesome. I thought that was so random and wonderful. Here's <laughs> this like... Like, you know, very rich authoress who has these famous books right. known, you know, probably around the world by this point. And she's, you know, she's winning prizes for her sheep, too. She's a real Renaissance woman. She is. She's Writer, into everything. Illustrator, sheep breeder, <laughs> and conservationist. So, yeah, it seems <laughs> the, the longer she stayed in the Lake District and the more she understood about it, um, the more important she felt conservation to be. And there were serious, I mean, that, that, that land and that area was very much threatened by kind of industrial development development yep, yep and concerns and to stem the tide of of this kind of encroachment on on the land and this way of life um she was buying up farms right. in order to preserve the land and work them as they had been worked for many many years and kind mm. of keep this way of life and keep the land as it is uh, which certainly was worth doing i mean you see pictures of the lake district and it's just unreal it's so stunning yeah i like that her it seems like her motivations shifted over the years which is kind of positive because she buys hilltop farm as her home originally Mm -hmm. um and it and then increasingly through the years as she buys more and more properties and larger and larger properties um you know it seems like she's doing this politically i mean i'm sure she's also buying it for herself and and she loves the farming and all the rest of that but i like that she sort of you can sense that passion underneath right and like i'm gonna make a statement and i'm doing this for a purpose and it's not just like oh i desire many large farms to own but (laughs) but she's 
you know, she's letting her, she's putting her money where her mouth is. And, and well, I really and admire that. Worked very hard. Right. Uh, she was one of the, I mean, she wasn't a founder of the National Trust in England, but she was very much involved with the National Trust and they worked with her. And um, actually, eventually, in a kind of sweet little, it's nice that she found kind of personal, romantic love again later on in life um her land agent um a man named william helis um who kind of it sounds like they were again kind of partners in these efforts of conservation and he would assist her in buying farms and he assisted her to buy a farm in particular i think the second farm that she bought after hilltop was uh castle cottage farm and he assisted her with that and they kind of it sounds like we're good friends and work together and then eventually this morphed into a a romance and in 1913 Mm -hmm. and i believe she was what in her 40s by that point Mm. 66 13. <laughs> I'll let you do oh, that. <laughs> Whatever. She's in her forties. Oh, yep. <laughs> Somebody can write in and tell us how old she was exactly. <laughs> um, anyway, in 1913, they married and moved into uh, Castle Cottage on that farm, and they continued buying property and running farms and working with the National Trust in order to uh, preserve the land and work on conservation efforts and oppose um, yes. industrial. Yes movements i'd like to point out at one year in one year she leads a successful protest against a hydroplane factory that's great i am now curious what a hydroplane factory well i guess the planes that land on water is that a hydroplane i think so okay. yeah <laughs> for some I reason look that was something different <laughs> it's like oh what's, what's this crazy factory <laughs> all right so she succeeds in not getting this factory built so. that's right and she just was involved in a number of efforts for that Atlantic community and it sounds like throughout these years kind of through the middle you know kind of mid to late part of her life um her books while she was still continuing to publish and i mean really there are dozens of those books um she published less of them and her focus became i think more and more on her property and these efforts of conservation and the sheep, of course, because <laughs> you got to breed those sheep. sheep. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Which actually we should point out, I thought this was just really nice. Kind of the last or, oh, before I mention this, uh, another neat thing during the war years, uh, she was involved in helping set up nursing yes. educational yep. trusts yep. and in 1919 helped set up the nursing trust um, in England, which is just, that's pretty great. Um, so by 1943, she's, she's getting up there, but in this year she's elected president of the Herdwick's Sheep Breeders Association, (laughs) which is just a nice little cap to her life because she died in 1943. So she didn't have long to serve as the president of the association. She was not uh, a long leading president, but (laughs) that's okay. But, um, on her death, she bequeathed 4,000 acres Mm -hmm. of her property to the National Trust, which was just a huge, huge thing for her for the country and something to do and it, it sounds as though the national trust has ever since then definitely seen beatrix potter as a major hero in conservation efforts in england and have worked very hard in her name to maintain 
those efforts at conserving that land. And it's, it sounds like even still, it's not an easy thing to do, mm. um, but they work very hard to kind of balance tourism and preservation and, right. and all of this. And yeah. um, in 1946, so just a few years after she died, her beloved Hilltop Farm was opened to the public by the National Trust. And, oh, I forgot to point out that Hilltop Farm figures very largely in a number of her books. Like there are particular illustrations in, in certain of the books that they know are like okay well that's the the top the stairway landing at hilltop farm and this is like the path outside <laughs> oh, i didn't realize hilltop that farm. So yeah great. so she certainly <laughs> used the farm as inspiration mm. and the the animals around her as, as inspiration for <laughs> for her books later on in life i guess i had assumed that when i knew she was buying all these country properties i thought okay now she must be pulling content from those and and using them as settings and that sort of thing absolutely yeah i was really um amused to read and and impressed that uh, hilltop farm is still extremely popular mm-hmm. and the land trust is actually struggling to to deal with the number of tourists that visit every year um these beatrix potter sites and specifically hilltop farm and they were describing it as just a, a very small uh farmhouse and there's like hundreds of people every day and they had to cap it at what 800, 800 people, people a, a day, day. yeah wild and what tickles me more is that all these japanese tourists I know, you're are gonna say that. so call back to our anno green gables or our lucy <laughs> montgomery episode because what is with these japanese tourists and the children's authors <laughs> these lady children's authors i just love it and it's, it's just, i love like so, so, um there's always these funny little bits of japanese culture that just tickle me so much they have these <laughs> random preferences but they explained um in the one page i was reading that uh the beatrix potter books were used to teach um japanese children english and so they were some of the first english books they were exposed to so yeah. it's you know it's nostalgia for them the same way that it is for any of us that's really uh, awesome. readers so yeah but i thought <laughs> great and i, I thought of of green gables and pei immediately and i was like it's just so funny that <laughs> That such a, you know, a specific group would love her so much. <laughs> I know. It's yeah. great. It's great. Oh, my goodness. So um, just to kind of round out our discussion of, of Beatrix Potter and her lovely work and her, her efforts uh, throughout her life, um, you know, it's taken a number of years for her to be recognized, excuse me, recognized scientifically, as we mentioned. So, but that has happened. Mm-hmm. Um, her books apparently she's just one of the top selling children's authors of all time and those books have been published and republished in so many editions and they're so beloved as as i think we all know i think many of us probably hopefully read the beatrix potter books as children and now of course the merchandising continues at a phenomenal rate (laughs) there's just you can get peter rabbit everything Mm -hmm. i wrote down actually the first time i saw so it was 1991 was the date where the uh they had the world of beatrix potter tm (laughs) so they're now adding (laughs) trademarks right and it's trademarked and And there's a theme park right right right. yes i saw that i was like oh dear Um, that was a themed attraction and uh, i think recently we really see see have seen this explode right i mean i mean branded children's merchandise is increasingly yeah. uh, profitable and, and, and marketed. But... It does seem in the last decade or so, there has been a bit of a resurgence. Mm. Um, not that it ever really went away, right? <laughs> uh, but there's been a bit of a, res- of a resurgence in Beatrix Potter's work. Um, so as we mentioned, the, the movie Miss Potter was mm-hmm. released in 2006. Yep. And then uh, even more recently in 2012, uh, the first, now anybody else, and I would be like, oh, how could you do this? But Imposters. it's pretty cool that in 2012, Emma Thompson, the actress and director and writer and all around just like 
awesome lady. <laughs> she's basically the queen of our world. Yeah, she is. <laughs> she's our if hero. you're listening, Emma, <laughs> we heart you. Oh, we heart you so hard. <laughs> so Emma Thompson in 2012 uh, wrote The Further Tale of Peter Rabbit. But the best part, the best detail <laughs> of this is she has referenced in interviews. I've watched a couple of different times. So she's talked about this detail that uh, the publishing house still, I guess, Frederick Warning hmm. Co., um, they uh, they approached her with the idea of writing this book. And she said if they had just, you know, written her an email or a regular letter saying, you know, dear Emma Thompson, will you please write a sequel to uh, <laughs> The Tale of Peter Rabbit? She said, no, what are you, crazy? I never would. I would never presume to do anything like that. This woman was brilliant and I would never presume to follow in her footsteps. But very wisely and sneakily, <laughs> what they did instead was write her a letter as if from peter rabbit himself and it's this i guess it's just this tiny little letter you know saying dear miss thompson won't you please you know write my story and on top of that he sent his jacket to her his little blue, little jacket. blue jacket oh my gosh included i'm gonna include the link to just this short little clip of of emma thompson on jimmy fallon uh recently or i don't know within the last couple of years talking about this and she brought the jacket with her and she pulls it out of her pocket and oh my god it is the cutest thing you have ever seen so she says like what what can you say to peter rabbit so she decides How would you ever turn him down yeah she decides to to write the further tale of peter rabbit which is very successful and from accounts i was reading well done which is not surprising Good. given her That's true yeah she seems like the the person who who would be appropriate to kind of carry that torch mm. and continue she's got that kind of wit and intelligence and um sense of and sense of humor and respect the historical absolutely you know, yeah. so at this point i think there's there have been several uh books that she's written kind of furthering peter rabbit's story and um they've been of course very successful as one might imagine so that's just kind of a nice nice way to cap beatrix potter's story i feel like beatrix potter and emma thompson would have gotten along <laughs> i agree <laughs> they might have been kindred spirits <laughs> and so the story continues and so the story continues that's right um so i think that's about it for me i don't know if yeah, you have anything absolutely. more to add nope. Okay. Well, once again, as always, we will be posting the links to the resources we've used for this episode. Uh, so check those out. And uh, as always, feel free to contact us with any, I don't know, comments or, or positive critiques. <laughs> we want kind words only, please. <laughs> um, so for, for this episode, I'm Dana. And I'm Heather. And thanks for listening. Yeah, thank you.